32 counties united by people. My name is Andrea, Una still away, and this is United Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland, beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. This week, we've got two smart people joining us. Bonus! Uh, first up, we have Leisha Nalen, who is a city reporter for the excellent Dublin Enquirer. She is going to be talking to us about a story she wrote about purpose-built student accommodation Um saying with developers saying there's a lack of demand for it and students not having anywhere to live that's an interesting quandary um we'll also be joined by linda kelly who is a shiro uh, she is from the better maternity care campaign um or women ascent and she is going to be talking about us about the ongoing maternity restrictions and the March for Maternity that's taking place this Wednesday in the Dáil at 1pm. So, yes, a very good episode. But before we get stuck in, it's time for me to do the Patreon call. If you answer Ireland's call or United... Oh, writing that down. Answer United Ireland's call and sign up on Patreon to support us from as little as three euro a month. Three cutesy little euro delicious if you can afford to support us we would really appreciate it and um, simply go to patreon.com forward slash united ireland and pay for this podcast now it's time for the state of the nation top of the news this week free britney britney spears has finally had her father, Jamie, suspended from his 13 years long role as the controller of the singer's business affairs. Um, I think sometimes this story can be like popped off as pop culture. But when you see a woman losing complete control of her life to somebody else under his control for 13 years... Jesus Christ, it's fucking terrifying. Um, so I'm absolutely delighted to see uh, the judge make this ruling. And I'm very happy for Brittany and her new life. And she just got engaged. So go on, Brittany, live your best life. Um, YouTube this week uh, banned anti-vax activists who are spreading misinformation about vaccinations. There was already um, bans in place for covid vaccine misinformation and now that it's spread across um all vaccine misinformation um it does feel a little bit too little too late but we can only but applaud any any movement towards stamping out misinformation and we've seen the dangers that have happened because of this um in particularly um that man who was broken out of hospital well, not broken out he it was under his own uh he consented but who died later after anti-vax activists um, filmed him being brought out it's just so upsetting to see science and fact be misrepresented and for it to have an impact on so many people and look we know it, it's not just you when you're making these decisions it's a, a societal thing um, so YouTube is the portal to most of these journeys into the darkness. Um, so uh, anything they are doing to combat that can only be a good thing. Um, something I really loved was the fact that Ireland is tackling the continued threat of wildfires by employing dozens of endangered goats that will eat the overgrown vegetation that fuels fires. Like nature... Everyone who follows me on Instagram will know how much I love and how I discovered actually nature during this pandemic um, for everyone. Uh, so to see nature being used to do what it should be doing um, is really a, a good sign, especially with the fucking shit show that's been going on specifically around data centers um, and electricity and how we're having to engage older coal and oil plants because of the strain on our national grid um, 
and the 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 head of the Green Party was the one who was bringing this news to us. And you have to just wonder how we've gotten to this point where we're like, okay, cool. We need these data centers. We may not have electricity for everyone who lives in the country, but you know, guys, our economy is going to be looking really swell. Um, and the queen of the doll, Catherine Connolly, summed it up perfectly. Um, she was like, I've never been as frightened that the government either doesn't understand the impact of data centers or is entirely enthralled to the developers. That woman only speaks sense. Um, obsessed. Do you know who she reminds me of? Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Catherine Connolly have a very similar energy, don't they? Um, in good news, it's not our nation, but maybe we could, maybe we, we've spoken about the, uh, Killian Woods was talking about a rent strike coming down the, the line. Um, and you can't but wonder how that won't be happening given everything that's going on. But Berlin backed a referendum on expropriating big landlords. So 240,000 apartments have been socialised. Vulture funds um, are being driven out of Berlin. Um, so whenever you hear a government saying, look, we can't do it, we need vulture funds. And also, lol, there was a, a conference where the vulture funds are saying, you can't call us vulture funds. Babes, if you don't act like a vulture fund, you won't be called a vulture fund. But I think uh, Berlin has shown that it can be done. Uh, people want to live in Berlin in houses that aren't extortionately rented out to make money or left empty to speculate. Um, and it was through a referendum. So obviously there's also always a conversation of, oh, I'm not sure if we can do this constitutionally. Um but we could do it through a referendum. So there, I know there is calls for a right to housing, but maybe we can include the the booting out of a vulture funds from our country. Delicious. Um, not delicious is the amount of businesses that are closing. For me, as South William Street is the centre of my universe, walking down, these are obviously only ones I would be aware of, but since the pandemic has started, we've seen Cowboys and Angels, a hairdresser that's been there for 24 years, has closed. Uh, Brasilia, the waxing uh, establishment, has been there for a long time, gone. Starla, uh, they are oh, a clothes rental and clothes shop. We're under Tropical Popical, gone. The Holistic Centre, over Tropical Popical, gone. Bloody Mary's, a pub down the bottom, gone. So many businesses are closing and I don't think like we realise the impact. No, we don't. COVID, was there an impact? But in terms of a biz, small businesses who are uh, who have struggled to get through the closures and all that jazz and now to make business work, um, I think we're going to see, well, we know we are going to see a lot more of this and this is really going to impact our city. And I think... We really need to start thinking about what we're going to do and have a plan for our city um, going forward. And cities. I'm, I always am very Dublin focused. I'm so sorry. Um, after all I've learned from our 32 counties educations. Um, but yes, the time is now for plans of action to make these, to make our country a livable country. Now it is time to talk to some interesting, clever, sensible people. We are going to talk to Leisha about student accommodation. Today we are talking about one arc within the housing crisis. You know, that one that the Minister for Housing is insisting isn't out of control. Um, we're talking about the student housing crisis, specifically empty purpose-built student accommodation, 
and students stuck in limbo, struggling to find somewhere to live, commuting up to 200 kilometers every day for lectures, and how these two managed to intersect on a Venn diagram of crazy decisions. We're joined by Leisha Nalan. She is a city reporter for the excellent Dublin Enquirer. If you are not um, subscribing to Dublin Enquirer, you are doing yourself a disservice. Um, hello, Leisha. How are you? Hi, Andrea. Thanks for having me on. Um, now, tell us, you wrote an article last week, the headline of which was providers of purpose-built student accommodation have been saying there's a lack of demand for it. Can you tell us um, a bit about what you found out about the seeming contradiction in narratives that there seems to be between students who have nowhere to live and the developers who have known to live in their purpose-built student accommodation? Um, yeah, Andrea, indeed. And the issue does go back before COVID. I think it's important to point that out at the very start that the for several years now, there has been high levels of vacancy in the purpose-built student accommodation um, for the simple reason that the pricing of it is out of the reach of most students. Um, it generally costs about 1100 per month to live in purpose-built student accommodation. So most students are looking for accommodation in around the 500, 600 euro mark. Um, so it is nearly twice the price of a kind of share house setup. Now, it's harder and harder to get the share house setups, obviously, as the housing crisis is affecting everybody. So as you said there, some students are ending up doing massive commutes, sleeping on other people's couches, even having to book into hotels. But they can't afford to get into arrangements, which mean they'll be paying 1100 per month for the whole of the academic year um, because they just don't have the money. Um, much the same as is the problem in, in general housing as well. People, there is accommodation there, but it's just completely outside of people's price range. They just can't afford it. They don't have the money. It kind of goes back to the um, the conversation that's been had so many times that we're building we're building things, but they're not the right things. They're either in the wrong place or the wrong prices. So if you have, and I know that there was comment um, that the planning authorities don't have control of pricing, so that, it, that but that the planning process is market led. So I just think it's really interesting that we're being faced with a situation where the planning permission is going through for student housing to alleviate the pressure that student living is putting on maybe more traditional homes that are being used for student sharing, yet the, the what's being built is then being priced out of range and left empty. Okay, that's the, the prerogative of whoever built it. But then where we run into issues then is when we have the local authorities who are giving um, permission for change of use, which then, which essentially is changing a, a decision to that a strategic decision for providing student housing and then changing that to co-living or changing that to short-term holiday rentals surely maybe that is where the problem lies and I, I think maybe that's what came through in your article yeah exactly Andrea that is a very strange setup so the the corporate landlords that own student accommodation are involved in some type of price fixing. And, you know, I do use that carefully, but clearly they're not trying to undercut each other. They are different companies. I don't know why they're not trying to undercut each other, why no one has broke ranks and dropped prices. I think it's because their company valuation is based on their unachievable rents and their unrealistic rents. So they don't want to drop their prices because that, one, they'll come under the control of the rent cap, but also two, and more importantly, their whole company valuation is based on these unachievable rents. Um, so they're very, very reluctant to drop those prices. But what's really strange is the role of Dublin City Council in this. I don't know how the planners in Dublin City Council came to the conclusion that it was their job to assist this kind of price fixing that funds are doing. Um, it seems really unusual. As I say, it started before COVID-19 ever hit. The first of these planning applications was the Point Campus, which is there beside the Point Theatre, beautiful new purpose-built student housing. Um, not right beside any colleges, but still, you know, the Lewis is there, it's close to town. Um, it, it's not a bad location by any means. And they first applied to change over to initially short-term letting in 2018, and they got that in January 2019. So as everybody knows, that's long before COVID-19. Mm. And then... A year later, also before COVID-19, 
they got permission to change to co-living. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know how that that was allowed or why it was allowed, but it just shows that the whole problem really does predate COVID-19. Now, certainly it has been accelerated by COVID-19, but the the planning um, permission that they got to, to convert to um, co-living, I, it's it's unimaginable why that was granted. I just don't understand that decision. It seems there's been decisions made in planning that follows the trend of what's kind of hip uh, in within developer world. So you have the student accommodation, then you have the co-living, then you have all these kind of these things that suddenly seem to be the trend du jour. But um, w- w- did you get a comment from Dublin City Council about why they were making these decisions? Um, yeah, so they tried to bring it all back to COVID-19 and they said, you know, that the international students... Um, has stopped coming um, during COVID, which is obviously true. And I mean, that is part of the story that a lot of the, the, this type of accommodation relied heavily on international students um, because most Irish students just wouldn't consider it. Their parents couldn't afford it. They couldn't afford it. It wasn't in their price range. Really, the, the Union of Students in Ireland representative told me that, you know, it's not even on the radar of Irish students. They don't even look at it as an option because it is so expensive. Um, so they were relying, the, they were relying on international students, and when they when they stopped coming during COVID, then that was the reason given by Dublin City Council for granting the planning permissions. Um, but as I say, you know, there's a Point Campus before COVID, and also there was another one as well. One of the GSA ones was also before COVID. Um, so. Well, I thought it was pretty interesting um, that Lorcan Sir, who's a housing lecturer at TU Dublin, um, was saying was asking the question, why should planning permission flip flop for what are arguably poor business decisions? So what the council are doing by allowing the change of use from student accommodation, which is desperately needed for people who Irish people who are looking for to go to college. But it, it seems that because they're not being filled, they're allowing it to be changed to these other uses. And I just can't get my head around why that would be. No, I don't either. And when it was when this model was being promoted within Dublin City Council, the managers were telling the councillors, oh, but look, it will free up family homes in your area because the students will move out of the family homes in the suburbs. They'll move into this. But if Dublin City Council is going to allow them to flip to short-term lets, then that won't happen either. So... It seems, it, it, it is inexplicable. I don't know why they granted them. The latest thing is a circular has now gone out um, from the Department of Housing and the Department of Higher Education um, to say that the, the local authorities should not be planning, should not be granting these planning permissions in general unless there's some exceptional circumstances that, that for some reason it's no longer suitable for students. Um, but I mean, this is purpose-built student accommodation built in the last few years um it shouldn't have been built if it's not suitable for students you know what I mean like that's what it's for the question is really interesting around whether or not they'll drop their prices how long can they hold out for um without dropping them how much vacancy can they sustain um looking at the example of London where there is a huge problem with empty purpose-built accommodation both built rent and student accommodation um it seems they can hold out for a very long time and I'd be really concerned that this problem will replicate itself in mainstream housing as well. Where we're seeing now a lot of vacancy in the high-end built rent apartments. So while there's a desperate need for accommodation in Dublin, um, we're also looking at the potential that we'll end up with loads of really expensive high-end built rent apartments that will just sit empty, just like what's happening in the student accommodation at the moment. And it actually is already happening in the in the domestic setting already, especially down in like place like Charlotte Key and Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And talking to people who live in, in high end built rent accommodation. And when I say high end, I just mean expensive. It's sometimes not that great, the accommodation yeah. itself. It's just very dear. But people are telling me, yeah, you can see there's loads of flats with no lights on in here and um certainly Killian Woods and Sunday Business Post has been documenting Capital Dock, Clancy Key and the levels of vacancy in some of these complexes. But I think the really important point is that, you know, the Minister for State, Niall Collins, came on primetime saying that demand or saying that supply would solve the issue of student accommodation. But clearly what we have is an oversupply of unaffordable student accommodation. 
and kind of it's counterintuitive, but supply isn't actually bringing down prices. We have oversupply and we've no price reductions. So that should be a major red flag um, to everybody that, that unfortunately flooding the market with unaffordable supply doesn't seem to bring down prices. So we're being left with building the wrong thing or the wrong price range and then speculation with loads of empty student accommodation and then areas where there's been a, 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 a load of student accommodation kind of left dead. Like I live in just beside uh, the Liberties in Dublin 8 where all, like the glug of uh, student accommodation is and there's just not that much activity around the area um, where all this has been built. So I suppose my question to you, a very easy question to end on today, what do you think the solution is? Uh, to me, the solution is a vacancy tax. So um, we're going to have a massive problem if we allow this system to continue the way it is. Lots of other jurisdictions like Paris, um, Toronto and numerous other European capitals are bringing in a hefty vacancy taxation. It needs to be um, applied correctly. We don't have any vacant homes tax. So we have a vacant sites tax, but we don't have mm. any vacant homes tax. So it needs to be very strong taxation in that it needs to be enough to deter this kind of vacancy from happening. If we have purpose-built accommodation and we have a severe housing crisis, we need to release that accommodation. And that means we have to make it unprofitable for the corporate landlords to leave it empty. Um, otherwise, we're going to go down the same route as London, where the majority of foreign investment trust owned properties are actually empty in London. They're completely empty. Nobody lives in them. So I don't think that's going to be um, conscionable for Irish people. I don't think they're going to accept that. Um, but we've had years of talk about vacancy taxation and we still have no commitment from government to implement a vacancy tax or a timeline for that. There would have to be some exceptions, obviously, Andrea, because you could get family homes that are stuck in probate and there are complicated um scenarios that evolve around vacancy taxation. So you wouldn't want to see some family punished because say granny's in a nursing home and mm. Alzheimer's and those kind of, there are real exceptions that would need to be put in place. And I think those exceptions have been talked about, but again, the vacancy tax when it came out in the housing for all was put in as a conversation to be had as opposed to any real, um, real actionable um, steps to be taken on it. Um, but I think, I suppose it's, it, it is worth saying that it does need to really en encompass student accommodation because I would be worried that if it's part of a strategic development, that when it comes to taxing that, it would be like, well, we need this student accommodation and we can't turn off the developers from, from making it. Um, even though we have so much of it empty. Um, on the circular from the Department of Housing, um, I, they published guidance saying that you had to, um, for a change of use, that there was no longer a need for student accommodation in the area. Um, I didn't really see what the how that was going to be uh, demonstrated, but do you think that that will, will, will work? <laughs> um, I would imagine that there won't be any more of these permissions granted but I can't be certain. We would hope. Uh, yeah, I would think that, the, I would think now that there's a clear line has come down around this. Um, they are allowed to do short-term letting in the summers as it stands. Mm -hmm. um, some communities, like you mentioned, the Liberties there, where there is high levels of student accommodation, they already didn't want that anyway because it just creates so much transience. Um, I think the hospitality sector is struggling after uh, COVID-19, you know, small hotels, B&Bs, and people like that don't necessarily want them to be to be doing this level of short-term letting either, even in summer. I think the year-round um, permissions probably won't be granted again in future. And even even if they are, like I was walking by them the other day, this is just conversational, um, and just seeing the size of the rooms and then the cost of what is being advertised, there's just a disconnect that is based on basically providing an in-house bowling alley or a gym or a cinema or whatever um, with the, and as Una has called a lot of the time, co-living or as insta-tenement. So there is that feeling 
around what is being built because they're so small and like in like the size of a disabled parking space it just is bananas the price that is happening so absolutely and you're sharing a kitchen with like seven other people so in many ways you're better off in a share house because you have you know in a share house you'd probably be sharing a kitchen with four other people not seven Mm. Um, so, but the rooms do have ensuite bathrooms. I think Irish students would start looking at them and, uh, you know, take an interest in them because they're often close to the colleges and close to the city centre. I think they'd start taking an interest in them if they were priced at around 600 per calendar month. Oh, 100%. Um, they do a great they are job. And we do, like, I think, yeah, completely out of that price bracket, like, at the moment. And it is fair enough to maybe end on the fact that we do need purpose-built student accommodation. It does make sense. But the fact that there is so much speculation and price gouging, and, or pr- not even price gouging, the opposite. Um, Leisha, thank you so much. Um, I look forward to reading more of your stories and um, how joyous to be part of a lovely uh, publication like Dublin Inquirer. Thank you so much, Andrea. Nice talking to you. It is time to talk about what is going to get in the sea. For me, what needs to get in the sea is the continued neoliberal approach of our hollowed Finnegal camp sisters and brothers. Um, this week they called for, we're talking about an extra bank holiday. Great. Maybe we should have an extra bank holiday every week and have a four day week. Cutesy little four day week. Yes, please. Um, but uh, in their calling for a bank holiday, it was like, let's have it on Thanksgiving. That American uh, celebration of colonial invasion. No, thank you. Nine, danke. No, 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 no. Um, and what's most upsetting about that, obviously, the, the political issue of what we would be celebrating, an American holiday, that all that jazz, why that's so wrong. But also the reason why they would choose that is to tie in with American visitors. So it's purely based on an economic issue of getting Americans over to Ireland. And this really, I think, goes back to our obsession with foreign direct investment, with looking externally when we have everything we need here. And I don't want to get very nationalistic about it, but like, why do we need to import an American holiday when we have such a wealth of history and such a, a wealth of current um, things that we can celebrate. Um, there's a call to make St. Bridget's Day or the start of Imbolog, um a bank holiday, which we have a beautiful matron saint um, who has um, gone, un, not uncelebrated, but less celebrated than she should be um, and why we we have the start of this beautiful Celtic season um, on our Celtic wheel. Why would we not look within to what we have to celebrate rather than importing a grim American celebration? It's a no from me. Finnegal and Thanksgiving can get in the sea. Bridget, let's get a girl. There's actually a petition to sign to... Uh, to bring that in. So if you are interested, I will post that in the show notes. Before we go on to talk about what is bananas this week. Now, this week on It's Bananas. Like, this is so bananas to me. Uh, I was lying in bed the other day and just watching real life uh, go on around me. If everything feels a lot more normal, obviously we have still have like th- the masks and stuff, but you kind of feel like you're getting on with your life and things are like slipping back. Sure, look, we had a pilot event yesterday. Fab, delighted to see it. Um, but I was just sitting there and I was like, there's still bloody maternity restrictions in place. Women are still going into hospitals on their own. Women are still having their antenatal uh, appointments on their own. Men are, and husbands and partners and uh, all the in-betweens are outside in car parks waiting to hear news, waiting to see if they have a child. Like, it's absolutely bananas to me. So with that in mind, I wanted to talk to Linda Kelly. She is from the Better Maternity Care Campaign, 
or Women Ascend on Instagram. And they, uh, she's organizing the March for Maternity on Wednesday at one o'clock at the door. Thanks for joining us today, Linda. Um, can you tell us what's going on with maternity restrictions? Because there is the feeling that most things have gone back to normal. And um, yet we still have these restrictions in place. And there was an easing of some after the furor, after the filming of the Rotunda, again, back to the requirement for there to be a public outcry for anything to change or for people, for the right thing to be done. But things are most certainly not back to normal. Can you explain what's currently in place? Yeah, and it is, to be fair to everybody, unless you're actually attending maternity services at the moment, it's really confusing and very hard to keep on top of where it's at. Because we started this campaign last September and exactly like you pointed out, every time we have managed to break through to a sort of media story and where there's been a lot of people going, sorry, what now? What's happening in our maternity services? Then suddenly there is an impetus for for change. But we're still in a situation today at the end of September in 2021, whereby if you go to a hospital in labour and they deem you to be in this early labour, or if you're before kind of three, four centimetres dilated, you will go to an antenatal ward. And unless it's during the visiting hour slot in that hospital, you'll be on your own and your partner won't be allowed access with you. Now, for people who've been through labour, they will know the early labour piece can go on for days. Days. Um, and it's very, very difficult. It's absolutely the point where you require your partner the actual antenatal information and advice from hospitals is that your partner helps because they help you to produce oxytocin, which is a hormone that helps progress your labor. Um, and there are lots of other practical reasons as well, like having somebody help you put on a TENS machine, you need somebody there with you for. So that's a big piece. And that causes a lot of anxiety for people right throughout their pregnancy because they are they don't know what's going to happen when they go into labor. Nobody does. It's a bit of a road coaster and they know that they're going to be on their own for some or a significant part of it once you get to a delivery room where you're where it's a, a single occupancy room is what they call it your partner will be allowed access for some people who don't live close to a hospital that is really problematic because there have been absolutely cases of the second parent be it a man or a woman missing the birth because they haven't been able to get back to the hospital in time and that's also really distressing for people you pointed out antenatal appointments there is no access for partners to antenatal appointments whatsoever except in very specific circumstances around high-risk pregnancies no definition around high risk some hospitals are saying to people yes we categorize you as high risk not high risk enough to have your partner with you because that makes sense to everybody and then also have the situation where visiting on wards is severely curtailed. So you pointed out the rotunda within a matter of hours after the public outcry around them allowing film crews into the hospital were magically able to extend their hours on ward visiting from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Just like that. Um, but in most hospitals around the country, it is very restricted. So it will be an hour or it will be two hours at the maximum. And so the way the, that's the kind of practical state of play and how that's working is that the HSE have set out a set of guidelines for people accessing hospitals around infection prevention control. That's to do for all aspects of hospital care because we know people in hospital are sick in general hospital. It's not the same profile of patients in a maternity hospital setting. Um, and so their guidelines have moved a lot thanks to an engagement with us. And we're, we're happy about that. But, you know, we're not happy about the fact that we met them on Wednesday and they said they're not going to make any more changes. You know, they're happy to kind of just keep it at the level where it's at. That's not acceptable to us. Um, and the other aspect of it is they said at the meeting and they acknowledged this and they confirmed it is hospitals aren't compliant with the bare minimum they've set out in their guidelines. And so you have a situation whereby the bare minimum isn't enough for people and most hospitals aren't even operating at that bare minimum. And so 
everybody is confused. If you're a person who's attending Port Leash, for example, last week I got so many messages from people to say, oh my God, look at the website. They updated the website to say visiting was now gone to 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. And people were elated. They were so happy that they were going to have support, particularly in the postpartum period. And next thing, the next day, so many messages. I've been in for my antenatal appointment. The hospital staff have said there are no changes. They've extended the hours, but you're still only allowed to attend for one hour between 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. So there's this campaign of misinformation from hospitals against their own service users, which just is unconscionable I think at this stage you know what I mean um, the HSE that the people we've been meeting are very genuine people really want to try and be constructive about this but also very happy to just sit back and be happy with the situation as it is at the moment and that's not acceptable so I got confused about this at the start. Who's actually in control about making these changes? Because you think it's the Minister for Health, nothing to do with them. And then you think the HSE, but kind of they're just issuing guidelines. It's really up to each hospital to make their own rules, is it? In a nutshell, yes and no. So uh, be prepared now for a long answer that I'm going to make as short as possible, (laughs) right? So let's start with a local hospital. So your local hospital has a hospital manager who is typically somebody who has worked kind of throughout administration and is now at the highest level of administration in the hospital. And then there will typically be a doctor or somebody on the clinical side who will be there as well. And that hospital reports to a hospital group which is a regional, uh, like all hospitals in a particular region will report to a hospital group. And so that's the boss of the person who's the boss of that local hospital. And then those hospital group CEOs report to the HSC nationally. If we had as many medical professions as we have managers, we'd be laughing, wouldn't we? (laughs) But it's also, it's about, I suppose, like because of my day job as a trade union official, like I've been in that system for a long time now. And there is recognition, like these hospital groups were set up as part of a change program that they've tacitly acknowledged informally hasn't worked. And so right before COVID, they were actually showing that they were going to move to these things called regional integrated community organizations. But ultimately, All it has done, and I think this was clearly shown by the really horrific and traumatic situation during the week that broke around the organs in CUH and CUMH, is that the oversight and governance in our hospital sector is completely broken. From the minister down to local management and hospital, there are too many layers of management Everybody has somebody to pass the book to and nobody's willing to make a decision because they just pass it up the line. And so it's broken for everybody. And that's not just maternity services either. Like the hospitals are also, because like I've experienced this as well over the last little while, my father-in-law has been in two different hospitals. My uncle has been in hospital and there are no visits allowed whatsoever for people. That is also completely and utterly against the national guidelines, which very clearly state visiting is a core part of people's recovery. It's really, really important for them. And there should be at a minimum four visits a week in an acute hospital. And the hospitals are just giving the HSC management the two fingers and saying, no, don't think I will today. And that's just like, and I think that's where it's been really frustrating that Stephen Donnelly has not come back to us. We have written to him looking for an urgent meeting. He's ignored us. Obviously, his secretary acknowledged the letter, but like there was nothing after that. And he's there then in media statement saying, I want to end these guidelines. I'm doing a radical listening exercise. I'm the champions for women's health and all. Like jog on, Stephen, like. You are not because like there are women who are traumatized right now accessing maternity services. You know, it's an issue. You know, it's an issue you have to solve and you're doing nothing about it. And that's why we're marching, Andrea, because I mean, we've been at this now since September 2020. I had my baby in July 2020 
and like like she's walking almost talking into crash I feel like she'll be in preschool before this is actually resolved and still every day what you can't get away from is the fact that hundreds more women are being exposed to these restrictions in hospitals and it's really distressing tell me this why are these restrictions in place now I know you can't answer for other people but like there is conversations around the fact that um, pregnant people have low vaccination rates or that it's to protect the most vulnerable. But I think when I see stuff like that, I'm literally like, there was so, it was so easy to, not so easy to, but it was easily available to run out antigen testing, PCR testing when required for club nights, for whatever else it was. Why can't we manage to do this? in such a situation where you need a partner with you and your partner it's their child as well it's their experience as well I and I think it's worth reinforcing that that it's not just the birthing that um is being missed but the the partners are missing out on their experience as well but what is the reason that's being given and why are these still in place so there is a legitimate concern and it's a concern that we also share, which is that the profile of COVID in unvaccinated pregnant women it makes them very ill. And that is a fact. So right now there is a disproportionate number of unvaccinated pregnant women in ICU. And what that typically will mean, and I, I don't have specifics because the HSE wouldn't share the specifics, But for a lot of people, that means the baby is delivered prematurely. So the baby is also then in the NICU because they've been born prematurely and mum is also very sick in ICU. That is very much concentrated in unvaccinated pregnant women at the moment. And so then we talk about the vaccination for pregnant people and the choice. And it is one that people are really struggling with because there was a lot, there's been a lot of changing advice on it. So when the opportunity to vaccinate pregnant people first came out, it wasn't a recommendation from the HSE. It was, we will make it available to you outside of the age groupings, but it's your personal choice whether you want to get it or not, and you should do the research and all of the research is positive to date. It has now been updated to a recommendation. There is very, very clear and unequivocal evidence that the risk of COVID to you in pregnancy is much, much greater and much, much more severe than any risk that the vaccine would bring. There is a lot of misinformation out there on social media that the vaccine causes infertility. There is absolutely no evidence around that. Where there have been problems is that the initial trials didn't track any changes to menstrual periods because we know sexism is institutionalized and that's true in medical research as much as it is in lots of other things. So it's not that the vaccine is causing infertility. They just didn't track changes to menstrual periods and now new research is is tracking that. There are lots of really reliable resources for people. It's really important if somebody is listening to this and they're really unsure about the vaccine, I can absolutely understand why that is because we're told when we're pregnant, don't drink coffee, don't take anything stronger than paracetamol, don't put anything into your body. Um, So it's, it's a real sort of, it's a real challenge to our gut instincts to actually take a vaccine that is new. But all of the evidence shows that it will protect you. And there's also now new evidence to show that it will also protect your baby because the antibodies will cross the placenta. Um, Their statistics that they quoted to us in the meeting around vaccination of pregnant people are totally unreliable. And we had a very robust conversation about that on Wednesday. And I mean by robust, I mean my head almost exploded, Andrea, trying to explain to them how incorrect they were. So that one, they don't have any reliable information at the moment because they didn't bother to count what was happening for pregnant people around the vaccination. So healthcare workers got access to the vaccine much earlier than everybody else. 80% of them are women. Lots of them were pregnant, no data captured. Then 
lots of when they actually put out about the vaccine first they didn't tell anybody where they could get it so there was about a three-week window where nobody knew anywhere to get the vaccine some GPs were able to give it other people maybe got in because of an age profile or whatever to a vaccination center nothing captured then eventually it was rolled out through maternity hospitals and I don't think they even really properly captured it Um, And again, at that time, it wasn't a recommendation. So they're relying on out of date, inaccurate data to say that 30 to 40 percent of the pregnant population are vaccinated. I don't think it's that low by any stretch of the imagination. It's not as high as 92 percent, but it's probably somewhere between 60 and 70 percent would be our kind of conservative estimation. A straw poll on my own Instagram account last week or the other day, 82 percent of people are vaccinated. And that is the kind of ballpark they're trying to get to is around eight and 10. And I think we're almost there, you know, so this idea that we would continue to have restrictions when vaccination is at that level doesn't make sense. They won't do antigen testing. They have said that they won't do antigen testing because they don't trust that it will catch enough of it. And their main concern is actually around where you catch the COVID. So they just don't want you to catch the COVID on the hospital grounds because you're going to co- you're going to the hospital sometimes on public transport, so you can catch COVID there, and they can accept that. They can't accept you catching COVID in their waiting room. So it's kind of hard to fathom that, you know, when the HSE are integrated into NEFIT um, and they don't do COVID testing of partners. They don't want to, and they also don't want to look for vaccination status of partners. The only mitigation risk they seem to want to focus on is just keeping partners, your main advocate when you're giving birth, out of the process. And that's the piece that is unacceptable because a partner is an essential part of the process for lots of reasons. One is to be an advocate for the person who's coming in, but also, as you quite quite rightly point out, they are also an essential part of the new baby's family. And like my husband was able to come in for the operation. I had a planned section. He was there for 45 minutes. He got kicked out after in the recovery when they went to move me. I didn't see him again and he didn't see our daughter again until I was discharged three days later. Like you can't ever get, like he can't ever get back three days with his daughter. And um, it's 14 months later and like it still has an impact on us. You know what I mean? Like it's these, like, but like (laughs) such a crude move. It's like, instead of actually like, using mitigating factors that we're just going to pull the tablecloth out and just stop people going in it just it doesn't and it feels like I don't like it's just so frustrating because it's always when it comes to women's health and it's always when it comes to anything to do with women it's like doesn't it just it just keeps happening it's so frustrating anyway the well, you're right, though, and there is there is a through line between the National Maternity Hospital ownership, between the lack of women in politics, and between you know what's happening around the restrictions. The fact that it's only all men on the cabinet subcommittee on COVID. The fact that women have borne the brunt of pandemic. Like there's a through line through all of it, and it does make you feel like a second class citizen in this country. I was only thinking the other day how great it is to have the likes of Holly Kearns, of Ivana Bacic, of uh, who are bringing these to the table. And if they weren't there, what would be happening now? And like that we are, that the importance of the, those women there. But okay, Wednesday, one o'clock, the doll. What are you asking for? What are the main calls? So the main message is we want every hospital to revert to pre-pandemic access for one nominated partner. We don't think that's too much of a stretch. Sometimes people try and conflate the issue of, oh, well, you can't have like every auntie and uncle and grandparent tracing through the hospital. Agreed. Happily keep them out. Happily keep them at home. No problem with that whatsoever. This is about allowing a nominated support partner to come in. And like one of the benefits of maternity services is that when you first go to a maternity service, first, uh, most people, it's your 12 week booking scan. 
there's no reason why hospitals can't have a system whereby somebody nominates their partner there and that runs right throughout their pregnancy and luckily hospitals have another like 28 weeks to plan you know in terms of people coming into the hospital Um, and the other like and the same is true for people going to early pregnancy assessment units so that's it that's that's our ask it's as simple as that there should be no reason there are any amount of solutions being proposed you know midwives get in touch with us like the midwives association of ireland have put out lots of different solutions of how maternity services can pivot during covid there are lots of solutions from us there are still solutions like antigen testing that should be used and the reason we're going to the doll is because the Minister for Health is trying to wash his hands of this issue. And that's not acceptable. Ultimately, he is responsible for the delivery of health services in this country. And he has to stand up and be counted when it comes to the delivery of health services for half the population, which is at the moment completely inadequate. So if Stephen is listening to your podcast, we'll see him on Wednesday at 1pm. And I, I just want to say, Andrea, you're absolutely right about the women's the women in the Oireachtas. We met with the Women's Caucus last, the week before last, and it was incredible. It was the only meeting we've had with elected politicians or with senior officials, whereby there was no argument about the impact of the restrictions. They totally accepted how difficult it was. And they were so energized to move directly to action to make sure that this ends. And it was so refreshing. I was actually sort of stunned and afterwards really emotional about it. But it makes such a difference to have women in decision making places. So they're going to play a key part in the march as well on Wednesday. The guards wouldn't let us close the road. So we've had to rethink a few things um, for it, unfortunately. But uh, hopefully, look, we get a big turnout and people see that is a really deeply felt issue and that many many people care about it brilliant see you on wednesday and uh fingers crossed we see some changes thanks so much for joining us linda thanks andrea time for some of my fave bits and i am delighted to say that i have loads of fave bits shit is back baby shit is back or not shit as the case may be. So, first up, No Time to Die, James Bond's uh, Return. Great film. It is a popcorn-eating uh, movie, if you will, um, of joy. It has got it all. It's got emotion. It's got drama. It's got chases. It's got a plane that turns into a submarine. It's got everything you want from a popcorn-filled piece of film joy um it's really enjoyable and yeah i really enjoyed it also enjoyed uh the the dublin theater festival kicked off and i was lucky enough to go to tkb's show in the ballymun axis and i have to say it was such a pleasure to watch um specifically not because of but as well as to see the idiosyncrasies and uh, the accents and the voices and the feelings of a working class writer coming through working class actresses they're on the stage in a theatre and I think we've seen a lot more diversity in theatre but for so long it felt like an elitist activity almost and there can be a snobbery so to see I don't want to make it about that because it's a great show and it has is full of heart it's dazzling very simple the staging is uh, very simple but yet you're enthralled by the story and I think that is what good theatre is and um, I would I I would urge you to go and see it, but it's sold out, so you can't. Um, but I would watch this space. Thomas Kane Byrne, congratulations, great. Um, and now I'm very excited to go and see Philly McMahon's Once Before I Go. The world premiere is in the gate, and it's just a great time for 
theatre, I think, coming back there. And for what's going on, like last night, there was uh, Niall Sweeney in Emma, Panty was down there and Tolu McKay. Uh, and just watching Instagram stories of people being at that, people were at the uh, TKB's show, people were at the nightclub pilot event, um, big up to Hidden Agenda and District 8 for that. Um, it seemed to go off, went well, delighted. Um, also, the 191st RHA Annual Exhibition is on at the moment. Again, such a blessing to have it. It's so varied. It's so accessible. There's so much great art in there from a wealth of amazing Irish artists. And yeah, it's a feast for your eyes. There's something for everyone. I love the annual exhibition in the RHA. It's one of my favourite shows. And um, sales are going well on it. So people are buying art. People are making art. Um, it's just great. It's just great. Um and also speaking of art, Alan Phelan's new sculpture at City Hall is, I saw a picture of it and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I saw it in real life and it is so gorgeous. Um, it is uh, a candelabra. Um, it's based on like a typical statue um, piece of art and it's in multicolored. That represents the makeup of our multicultural city at the moment. Um, it's outside City Hall. It's going to be there for um, a year. And the description of it is it's a little bit fun, a kind of kitsch. Well, could you ask for more of my type of visual description in life? No, you couldn't. Right up my straza. Um, it's called Sconce. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it is a candelabra and red. Uh, green and blue because those colours make up every colour um, it doesn't take things too he said the original is delicate this is more blobby clunky and handmade it's a bit of fun kind of kitsch and gaudy oh those two words delicious everyone shuns them in art they're the best and um, it's not taking itself too seriously and that's a good thing I like humour oh my god obsessed with Alan Phelan um, I'll be looking him up a lot more now I need to get to know that um and finally, in my fave bits, I didn't actually go to it, but Ava Festival in Belfast, I will be putting it in my diary. I will definitely be going next year. It looked like such a buzz. Uh, and yeah, I think everyone who was there was saying that it was really lifted the bar from the last ones. It's gone from strength to strength. And I'm very happy uh, to see that happening. And I can't wait to go to it. And also, I can't wait to go to other voices. If anyone has any accommodation for me, that would be stunning because there's none. Uh, shout out for other voice accommodation. Thanks. They were my fave bits. If you can't use your own podcast for getting accommodation for a festival in Dingle, what's the point? This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan and Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack and Sarah Fox did all of our design. And this week's tuna chicken roll, it's a classic that's got a modern twist. It's called Life is a Song Worth Singing, Teddy Prendergast with Jamie Jones on the re-edit. Um, and the messaging in that song is very on brand for me. It's all about you have the power to make the decisions to control your life, live, create the life you want to live. All my key messaging hit there by Teddy Prendergast. Um, and it's an absolute bop. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was, that was student accommodation and maternity restrictions. I'm going to come up with a snappier name for that by the time it hits the hits the internet stand by
side.